This Sunday is Holocaust Memorial Day. Welcome to my third Jewish and Israeli interest podcast with two very special guests. Ewan Phillips, spokesperson for Labour Against Antisemitism. He fights it in the Labour Party by reporting and highlighting it. He's not Jewish and he's never been to Israel. So why does he do it? My other guest is my own late grandma. Back in 1984, when I was 17, I recorded her testimony on cassette at home in Birmingham. Practicing early ambitions to work in radio, I wanted one day that my children would hear her Viennese voice to explain in the most sensory way that we didn't originate from here and from her own life story to explain it. 77 years old at the time, Grandma Olga Pasana recalled in detail how she left Vienna for England in 1938 via Budapest and Prague. Her story, getting here, and the earliest days in the UK are coming up. Now, if you're on Twitter, you may have seen Ewan Phillips tackling anti-Semitism on an hourly basis. By his own admission, as spokesman for Labour Against Anti-Semitism, he's put his career and reputation on the line. This guy is still a racist. Yeah, Jamie Corbyn is a racist, Jamie Corbyn is an anti-Semite. You know, that hasn't changed because he got a, a slightly better than expected poll performance. You need to discover your Labour values, you need to discover your anti-racist values, and you need to make and you need to actually do something. Whether that's making a bit more noise, whether that's going onto TV programmes and talking about this, maybe it's being more confrontational in, in PLP meetings or in direct private uh, meetings with, with Corbyn and with McDonnell and with people who are supporting Jeremy Corbyn. But we keep getting told that people in Labour need to stay and fight. Well, I, need, I see lots of people staying. I don't see a lot of people fighting, and that's what I want to see. I really want to see Labour MPs fighting for the soul of the party because it is being torn away from them and they're just sitting there and letting it happen, and that is, that is, that is just appalling behaviour. In July 2017, he was appointed chair of his local constituency party, something he was very proud of. But it was a role he lasted in just nine months, as he felt he had no choice but to resign in April last year because of his growing concerns and dissatisfaction at growing anti-Semitism within the party. Two years ago, Ewan and his colleagues, Jewish and non-Jewish, set up LAAS to begin tackling party anti-Semitism. I met Ewan in central London and started by asking him why he sticks to such an impossible task. When I joined the Labour Party in 1996, um, one of the reasons I joined was that I wanted to fight uh, racists. Uh, and I certainly didn't join the Labour Party to be led by a racist. And unfortunately, that's the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semitic racist. Uh, he's leading the party in a direction which is completely antithetical to my values and to my views. And I think that's, that's appalling. I think he's a, he's a threat not only to our democracy, but to uh, left-wing politics in the UK, because I feel that he's betraying everything that, that Labour stands for and that Labour governments have achieved. Secondly, it just felt like the right thing to do. When, when I became more aware of this issue and, 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 you know, I wasn't one of the people who was there at the beginning saying Jeremy Corbyn shouldn't be elected leader because of his record on anti-Semitism. That, it, just wasn't, it just wasn't an aspect of his, of his political career I was, I was aware of. But as, as I became aware of it, as I understood the concerns of, of Jewish friends within the party, m- many of whom I'd, I'd actually just met on, on social media, 
it, 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 I just couldn't I just couldn't stand back and, and ignore it and I, just, I couldn't I couldn't join in with the rest of the party and say well you know Jeremy's done better in the election in 2017 so let's get behind him I, I, I can't do that I'm, I'm not going to do that and and I, you know I'm, I, I'm just I just I just can't do it and and so if, if you if you if you oppose something then you have to stand you have to stand by your convictions and you have to stand by your values and, and that's that's what I've done and fortunately uh, I've got you know there are a lot of people who who feel the same way and 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 we've we've managed to come together and form Labour Against Anti-Semitism and yeah we hope that we're doing yeah what it takes to to, to really um you yeah, confront anti-Semitism in the Labour Party now, in July 2017, you were appointed chair of your local constituency party, something as a lifelong Labour activist you were very proud of, I'm sure. But it was, it was a role which lasted just nine months in, as you felt you had no choice but to resign in April last year. This must have been a crushing blow. Did you think at that point, I don't think I can be a member of the Labour Party anymore? Yes, I mean, I, I don't think there's been a been a point over the last eighteen months where I haven't questioned my membership of the Labour Party. Like 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 many people, I mean, Labour against anti-Semitism is is uh, a mixture of, of current and former Labour Labour members. The reason I, I I had to stand down as chair was was because it was it was around the time of the of the Mere One mural where again revelations about Jeremy Corbyn speaking uh, praising a, a, what was a, a, an obviously anti-semitic mural in east london uh, came to light and and basically the sort of uh, two hats that i was wearing as a as a as a local labor activist but also as a as a national spokesperson against anti-semitism I, c- I could no longer keep those roles separate and it was it was impossible for me to to in all all honesty go out and 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 campaign for a, a Jeremy Corbyn government i'd i'd written before that about some steps which I felt that Corbyn could have taken uh, to address the issue. I felt that if he'd if he'd wanted to, he could have sort of said, "Yes, I, I held these views. I understand that they are wrong, and I'd like to understand more." And he could have could have led with an example of of, of someone who's who who, who develops a, an appreciation and awareness of the complexity of anti-Semitism, who understands how it manifests on the left. But he obviously didn't want to do that, um, and and his response to the anti-Semitic mural was appalling. Uh, it clearly showed that he wasn't interested in, in 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 dealing with his own personal anti-Semitism. Certainly wasn't interested in dealing with it in the party, and um, and my my role as chair of my CLP was just uh, incompatible. Did I think about leaving the party? Yes, as I said, yes. I've, I've thought about leaving the party many times. While people are still in the party who are fighting for the party, then I will still st- stay in there with them. People like Luke, Luke Akehurst, who, who's, who's a, a tireless um, fighter for, for moderate Labour values, for, for you know strong Labour values, and he's very much an inspiration for staying in the party. My head says that the Labour Party is so institutionally racist now that it's, it's almost beyond any kind of sort of comeback. But my heart still says that there's, there's maybe a way that it's salvageable. I'd rather they try and kick me out than me give up my, my membership willingly. And if they want to try and kick me out, they can do. They know where, where I am and they know where my address is, but, you know, they haven't done so far. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends that it knows in terms of 
there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel. Um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries, there is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. The Parliamentary Conservative Party is now behind Theresa May in a way that you'd probably say the Parliamentary Labour Party, just simply apart from the front bench, uh, is not behind Jeremy Corbyn. So what would you say to the wider community of Labour MPs, the social democratic end of the party, so to speak, people like Ian Austin, John Manchuk, Amuna, Luciana Berger, should they follow Frank Field out of the party and be um, an independent. After all, they are a part of an electoral college which could bring in a Jeremy Corbyn government. I mean, I've heard Ian Austin speak on this issue a, a, a number of times, and you know, I appreciate that he's in a he's in a really, really difficult uh, position, and, and I respect that. And, and to be honest, I, I understand the real the realism of our Tea Party polit- political system. That if Ian Austin was to become an independent MP, Labour, uh, la- you know, the Labour hierarchy would simply uh, appoint a uh, more pro-Corbyn um, candidate to fight the next election, and that pro-Corbyn candidate would most likely get in because of the strength of the Labour brands. I would rather Ian Austin was there as a Labour MP after the next election. If that's within a Labour government or not, you know, that that's fine by me. Same with Luciana Berger. Same with uh, John Mann. These are people who are standing up and fighting for their principles and who aren't scared to say there is a problem in our party, there's a problem with our leader, and we want to see some change. What I do find uh, uh, pretty disgraceful is the silence of so many who opposed uh, Jeremy Corbyn, voted against him in the vote of no confidence in 2016, and have fallen into line because he did slightly better than expected in 2017 in the general election then. You know, this guy is still a racist. You know, Jamie Corbyn is a racist, Jamie Corbyn is an anti-Semite. You know, that hasn't changed because he got a, a slightly better than expected poll performance. You need to discover your Labour values, you need to discover your anti-racist values, and you need to, make, and you need to actually do something, whether that's making a bit more noise whether that's going on to TV programmes and talking about this, maybe it's being more confrontational in, in PLP meetings or in direct private uh, meetings with, with Corbyn and with McDonnell and with people who are supporting Jeremy Corbyn. 
But we keep getting told that people in Labour need to stay and fight. Well, I I see lots of people staying. I don't see a lot of people fighting. And that's what I want to see. I really want to see Labour MPs fighting for the soul of the party because it is being torn away from them. And they're just sitting there and letting it happen. And that is is just appalling behaviour. Hashtag be louder, which brings us on to the subject of Rachel Riley, one of the most high-profile co-fighters of left-wing anti-Semitism. She spoke in Parliament just this week uh, with her characteristic courage and bravery. Um, Now, since Labour adopted the IHRA definition, it seems among the fog of Brexit that Corbyn and Labour are getting away with it. Even Brexit, discussing anything else. Uh, But his history, his background in anti-Semitism is giving him a sheen of respectability. Rachel Riley has done an absolutely fantastic job. Um, she's been hugely courageous. What she's doing is that she's taking that message to people who wouldn't otherwise hear it. She's taking it to people who watch daytime TV, um, who, who, who follow her on Twitter, who, 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 who maybe read, who, who maybe don't read the political uh, pages of newspapers. And that is really uh, taking the message to places that Jeremy Corbyn and, and his and his sort of media outriders like Owen Jones and Aaron Bastani just can't reach. And I think Rachel uh, and and people like Tracy Ann Oberman and, and Francis Barber as well they deserve a huge amount of credit for for their bravery in standing up and, and saying so. There is a problem. There is a challenge with 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 Brexit at the moment. That Brexit is really taking up all the sort of airtime on BBC News, uh, in the media, and it's really crowding out uh, a lot of the a, a lot of the the concerns that we have, a lot of the mounting evidence that we have. That despite Labour adopting the IHRA, uh, you know, after quite a lot of resistance, which was again extremely problematic in itself, they're not actually implementing it. You know, Labour against anti-Semitism has submitted report after report. Uh, since last uh, August, and you know we're getting people who are saying, "Oh, the Israelis are, are, are murdering Palestinians to harvest their organs." Um, you know, some of the, some of the very worst sort of 1930s era Rothschilds conspiracy theories you, you could possibly uh, not hope to see. These people are getting referred to training. They're getting let off with warnings about their conduct. They shouldn't be in a Labour Party. They should be kicked out. They should be slung out on their ear and told not to come back but people within the Labour Party hierarchy are saying you know what you know you say that the world's being run by a Rothschild uh, conspiracy we don't we're going to shrug our shoulders at that we're not going to take the desired the, the right uh, uh, measures and that's just really the Labour leadership saying that they're pretty cool with it and I think that is that's really bad it's this thing about being against anti-Semitism and all forms of racism, which in a way excuses Chris Williamson from signing the Holocaust Memorial book and for someone like Owen Jones to troll, I think it's fair to say, Twitter followers by celebrating Hanukkah. Um, these aren't members of any community I want to be part of. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think I think what we've seen over the last sort of six to twelve months is is um, you know a lot of people could have been forgiven for being uh, ignorant of the complexities of this issue of of not understanding how um, criticism of of the Israeli government uh, you know frequently um, over, over you know moves over the line towards being outright anti-Semitic abuse of of of, of Jews and Judaism, but. 
I don't think people really have that excuse anymore. And, um, you know, it's all very well and good for people like Owen Jones to say that they're, they're declaring an all-out war on anti-Semitism, as Owen has. But, yeah, how, re- how, how strongly is he, really, is he really following up with that? Because he's not there, he's not condemning Chris Williamson. He's not, you know, having a go at Jeremy Corbyn for, for you know, for his failures. He certainly hasn't condemned Jenny, uh, Jenny Formby for her failures to, uh, for example, um, expel Jackie Walker, who's been suspended by the party for over two years now, despite there being a, an assurance that all cases would be cleared up last summer. So what we're seeing is the left wing, uh, the left wing sort of alt left media, people like Owen Jones, people like Aaron Bastani, who are saying out of one mouth yes we oppose anti-semitism but on the other hand they're facilitating uh the anti-semitism in the in the party which which they which they claim to be uh, claim to be fighting it's it's double standard I'd, I'd actually call it hypocrisy to be honest let's pay tribute now to david collier whose uh, blog is a statistical masterpiece each and every article and, of course, Rapier Sharp as he is on Twitter. Now, in his usual characteristic statistical thoroughness, he measured the amount of times Israel, Jewish and Palestine had appeared in Hansard, the official record of parliamentary discourse. He concludes that Corbyn is a mere symptom of anti-Semitism and there's a growing British obsession on this in Israel. In fact, in the 31 years since uh, Hamas was founded, that word Hamas has received 2,500 mentions, which is more than Banger and Port Talbot have put together in 70 years. And I'm thinking to myself, no wonder the South Wales boys and girls voted to leave. Well, absolutely. I mean, I wasn't aware of, of anti-Semitism in the UK. I, I, I didn't really understand how it worked. And it's been quite a learning a learning curve for me since since 2015 and 2016. I think I think that just really shows how um, how embedded uh, institutional anti-Semitism is, not just in the Labour Party but across society on left and right. And I think that is is reflected in in the in the focus that is given to to Israel in our in our parliamentary proceedings. Anti-Semitism has existed on the left long before Jeremy Corbyn. If you have a read of Dave, Dave Rich's book. You know, you'll see that left left wing anti-Semitism has been a problem. You know, since since the the Second World War and, and, and even going back to to Karl Marx. I think there is more specifically a, a, a link that goes back to a academic conference in 2001 in Durban, um, which was a sort of international NGO conference where they uh, it was declared that Zionism was the number one racism across the globe, and and that seems to have really sort of embedded itself in left-wing academia and has then filtered through to to left-wing politics. When I see union conventions, party conferences and Celtic fans waving Palestinian flags in their hundreds or thousands, to me, as a Jewish person looking on, it looks like not support for Palestine. It looks like anti-Semitism. It looks like something from Bavaria. I find the trade union position very difficult. Again, they, they claim to be... Uh, anti-racist. They they claim to to be uh, to show solidarity with, with with workers across the world and and with with um, marginalised peoples, but they don't show solidarity with 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 the Jewish people, and and they're not showing so, so solidarity with with trade union and labour labour groups in Israel. Many of them are affiliated to the uh, Palestine Solidarity Campaign. You mentioned David Collier. Uh, earlier, David Colley has done a huge amount of research into the Palestine uh, solidarity campaign. It's 
to describe it as problematic is 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 really just sort of me pulling my punches. It's deeply anti-Semitic. Uh, many of its members uh, think nothing of promoting anti-conspiracy anti-Semitic con- uh, conspiracies. Its secretary Ben Sofa has defended Ken Livingston um, for making anti-Semitic comments. Um, and he actually works in Corbyn's office, uh, and, and is married to Cat Smith, the, the Cor- Corbynite MP. We sort we see this sort of blind affiliation to deeply racist organisations across the left, and it, it's just it's just lazy thinking, which is doing nothing to confront anti-Semitism in, in, in the Labour movement. It's it's just appalling, and I think that there are people in the trade union movement who need to have a really good think about where they're relative moral values are um, because at the moment they're, they're, they're lying in the dustbin Where do you think Britain is heading? Is there a socialist shake-up about to happen with all the associated problems that you've just highlighted or is something else stirring with Brexit being a rather typical middle English revolt? I've spoken to with, with, a, with a couple of academics about this because you know there's obviously been a lot of political discussion at the moment and academic discussion about populism and there's there's obviously been a lot of focus on, on right-wing populism with the election of Trump and the, and the uh, victory of the Brexit campaign and I do see there being uh, and, and uh, Victor Orban uh, in Austria as well and, and I do see there, there obviously being a, a huge challenge from the populist right I think uh, post-Brexit there will be a, uh, a betrayal narrative from the right that, that the uh, elites have, have betrayed the, the, the wish of the will of the people on Brexit and, um, and, and that will be, will, be, will be stoked massively and we, and we know we know the outcomes of, of, of populism and wh- where that can lead to. So that's very concerning. Equally concerning is the way that uh, Jeremy Corbyn's team have, have purposefully adopted many of the uh, tropes of the tra- Trump campaign, including the idea of the, the rigged system. This is something that's been written about quite quite extensively. Uh, and again, they're, they're stoking a uh, the idea that the... The people are being betrayed by a, by the one percent of, of global capitalists, and that if only they were were removed, then the people would be free to enjoy a, a, a sort of utopia uh, that is currently being denied to them. And, and again, you know, we know where scapegoating leads. We we know uh, where a, a possible conclusion is for that for that kind of thinking. And when you when you tag that onto a party which is already institutionally anti-Semitic, again, I find that. I find that very concerning. So I think I think you've got two political parties which are heading in, in very alarming populist directions. The the third option, which which I'm hoping will 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 come about, is that there's some kind of reassertion of the centre. The population of the UK rejects both the the right right wing and the left wing politics, and, and and there's there's a reassertion of the type of politics which has dominated the UK uh, since the Second World War, and which has provided you know fifty seven you know sixty seventy years of, of progressive prosperity, increasing social liberalism, better health, better education. Yes, there are areas of the country where there's huge amounts of poverty, but. You know, let's not lose sight of the fact that as a as a society, we we've improved over over the years. We we are a society which, which is inherently getting better. Yeah. You know, let's not forget that. Let's keep on with the values that that have got us there, and with the politics that has got us there, which is based around consensus and with uh, reason and rationale, with not overspending, not underspending, but sound sound investment. And that's where we should be going, not diving to the left or diving to the right.
from one centrist dad to another, uh, <laughs> Ewan Phillips, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> and now, Grandma, Olga Pisano, 1907 to 1994. Growing up in Birmingham was culturally rich. We were part of a city with a long-standing Jewish community with deep roots, literally and metaphorically. The West Midlands was still industrial, a principal city of the world grappling with pre-Thatcher strife. I was bermitzvahed in Singer's Hill, a magnificent shul dating back to 1856 for a community established earlier in 1730. In stark contrast to my father's family, my maternal grandpa arrived in England in April 1939. My Gould family were Brummies for a number of generations. My paternal grandfather was actually born in Birmingham 113 years ago. When I married Karine in Singer's Hill Synagogue in 2015, I followed my father, grandfather and even great-grandfather in 1866 in marrying under a chuppah on that very bimmer in that very shul. On her perilous journey, my grandma knew everyone around her knew that she was a young Jewish woman on her own fleeing her home. Imagine the fear, the heartbreak of saying goodbye to your parents. She was never to see them again. My great-grandparents were murdered by the Nazis. Grandma lived a life you'd imagine in Vienna a hundred years ago, surrounded by Klimst's canvases, loose modernist buildings, Mahler's music, Wittgenstein's philosophy and Freud's psychotherapy, but it was to prove superficial. Dark forces were also in play throughout her young life. Facing the threat of an invasive search by an SS officer on the train to Hungary, Grandma gave the pittance of jewellery and money she'd brought with her to fellow passengers, complete strangers, hoping she'd get them back. More than once, Grandma told me she arrived in the UK with just 20 Austrian shillings. The last leg of her journey to England was remarkably by passenger plane, the last vestige of the life she left before becoming a housemaid here. The pilot flew at high altitude, lest they be shot down over Czechoslovakia. Grandma had no family here, only her sister Greta initially followed her a couple of months later. Have a listen, she was really careful to talk to fellow passengers as Hitler's regime in Vienna uh, self-censored her, but Grandma didn't speak freely until they were safely over the border into Hungary where the Nazis had yet to invade. Even the ticket inspector, sensing Grandma was Jewish, knew why she was a passenger to Budapest and whispered, ''Don't worry, I'm red, a communist, you'll be able to return soon.'' the very, very worst of identity politics in action. Later, she was searched thoroughly by the SS for belongings they could confiscate from a young Jewess on the run, but luckily my grandma had anticipated this, befriending complete strangers, fellow passengers, who she trusted to give her belongings to, hoping they'd return them over the border. Excuse the cassette quality and my grandma's broad Viennese accent. Her optimism, despite everything, beams through the crackle and the recording motors. When Hitler came, I was... You were 29, yeah. This was 1938, and then I was lucky to come to England on a domestic permit. I went first from Vienna to Budapest, and there I stayed for, I think, three weeks. And then from there, on a plane to Prague for one day, from there to, to England. Did you work in Budapest for those three weeks? No, 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 what did you do? Friends. 
I took, I was ill then, you know, to this upsetting, mm. you know. But I must tell you a little story. My parents was on the train in Vienna when I went, you see. And we was not allowed to take anything. And But I had my case, you see. And a bit of jewelry, you know, my hand is. And the parents was very upset and I was very upset. And Mama put me in a department where a couple was a very nice mm -hmm. couple. And I found it out afterwards. It was a very nice couple, mm. you know. But I had no. I was very upset, you mm. know. But I know I can't come back more. And before we came to the border, there, well, the kid inspector came and I had to take my passport. And he said, "Don't worry, I'm right. You will be back again. We'll be back again one day." Oh right, yeah. You see. <laughs> but in any way, well, I was afraid, you know, something will happen, but on the borders, they can send me back or something. Yeah. But in any way, this couple said, don't worry about us. We will, we will do anything to We will do nothing to you. Let me have all your belongings, you know, the jewelry and stuff, or money. I give it you when we're over the border. I was a bit worried, but... Why would you want to give it them? No, they would take possibly the SS men would come oh, on the Jewish ground and they would, you know. And I think, I was so upset, I think I don't know. But in any way, I gave them what I had, not a lot, mm. but a little bit. And they was very, very nice. And when we took the border, you know, mm. and the SS men came and looked everywhere. Yeah. But, and they gave it me back, yeah. And I thank him, but in any way, they asked me where I go, and I said I go to France and so. And I wrote him then when I was there, a thank letter, mm. and I wrote him I'm in hospital, I was with a breakdown. And they came to see me. Oh, really? Very, very, very nice. Yeah, but I think this was Yugoslav people yeah. or something, so what I call it. Have you lost contact with them now? Yeah, yeah, immediately. They never, I never yeah. saw them again. Yeah, again. But they say to me, we have, they haven't talked here a lot with me, only after the border, mm. when we have been. But this was a time where Hungary was still part of Austria. But yeah, but Hitler wasn't there yet. And then I stayed with the president and then I came to London. To London and I think I was so upset I had friends or took me to the plane. And on the plane I remember all I was very upset. The plane said we have to the captain said we have to go very high up. I think it was September. I can't tell you the date. This was just the time when Hitler well, invited Czechoslovakia and the captain said we have to go very high where it's danger zone, you know. And I think, I don't know, I cried, I don't know, I was very upset. And I fall asleep. And in London, a friend of ours, you know, picked me up. But before I was, when I woke up, I was so ill. So sick of the yeah. helped me, you know, to calm down. But in any way, everything turned out all right afterwards. And so how long were you in London for? My position was in Northwood, near London. There was a very, very nice couple. And I think these people had to be something to do with, possibly he was a, something to do with the government. Well, he was always, I remember the Englishman, you know, with yeah. top hat on this. And she, very nice, proper English place, mm. you see. Very nice house, wasn't And I had my dictionary this way, and she couldn't speak a bit, she couldn't speak German, I couldn't speak English, we looked her up. Yeah. <laughs> and I had, you know, I had to cook. But uh, I stayed there, it was very nice, but I took ill. I took ill there again, mm. the woven house where all the refugees came, where they took me again to a hospital. And then, and then after this hospital, I had, I was not allowed to be alone. And then Greta came, I think. She came a month later, but she went to another place to ask permission from 
And then from there we went to a huge couple, very nice people. But did, did you not have family here to go with? To Nobody. Nobody. When did you meet uh, Grandpa then? This was in... He was in turn. You, you knew him before you came to England? Yes, I knew him just nothing. But yeah. I met him then, this was in... I think I met him in December or in January, 39. Yeah, once you were here. Yeah, when I came to, to Nottingham, when the war broke out, we had to go inside the land, you know, not to... Why did you go to Nottingham? People mm. was not allowed to be on the seaside, or they say so it's better why? to be not in London. So why, why did you pick Nottingham? I can't tell you why, but I think it was a position for both of oh, us. Oh, right, and that's when you met? Yeah, yeah. the event met me. So this, you know this domestic permit, you said? You said you had a domestic permit. Was that a permanent permit? Was it or Was it a permanent permit? Or yeah, yeah. There I met he, had, he, he was interned. Then when he came out, we found, you know, we had to find a job for him. Mm -hmm. And he had the opportunity to find a Remington, one in London or Birmingham. But they advised him to go to Birmingham better, but it's dangerous with a bomb in London. Oh, I see. And then he had a relation in Nottingham too. Oh, yeah. Nearer there too. And I remember I went with him to, when he had a, um, you know, this appointment with Remington, Birmingham. I think he wasn't out, I think one hour, and I came the other month. Oh, excellent. <laughs> and he told me, he said, I think they are very silly, these English people must be. He, I couldn't, he couldn't speak either, not a lot, but they gave him a little room with a typewriter, mm. all in pieces, yeah. all in pieces, yeah, yeah. and told him to put it back. And this manager went out and left him. He said he was ready in 10 minutes, you know, and then he went out and looked for the manager. My grandpa and his brother, both elite footballing athletes, were among around 4,000 Jewish adult men interned at Kitchener Camp in Sandwich in Kent given refuge from Nazi Europe, travelling in from Berlin and Vienna. In the summer of 1940, when France was taken by the Nazis, it was thought too risky to keep the so-called enemy aliens too near the English coast in Kent, and the camp was closed down. My grandparents are a triumph of those people's lives destroyed and disrupted, yet given the opportunity to rebuild in a country which allowed them to. My grandpa, a retired footballer of the famous Hakoa Vienna Football Club and a fully qualified typewriter mechanic, had a wartime skill in big demand. And together, they restored their lives in double-quick time. I'm exceptionally proud of them, inspired by their arrival here. My grandma had a lifelong gift for befriending the most trustworthy and best of humanity, maybe because she was exactly that too. Her knack for this also happened in Brum with some very dear friends who helped them immeasurably on their way. But she had to go low to go high. In her thirties in Vienna, she owned an exotic pet shop. She danced ballet and loved the waltz pirouetting in her living room to show me how it was. In the forties in Birmingham, after leaving domestic service, she worked on the tills in Woolworths and with my grandpa rented a room as newly married with a young son, my Uncle Peter, in Four Oaks, Sutton Coldfield. My mum followed in 1945. By the late 1940s, my grandparents had their own home, their own business. My word, they were patriotic. The business was called Britannia Typewriter Services, and my uncle's middle name is Winston. When I get the train out of Aston Villa, I gaze at the Britannia pub opposite where their shop stood and connect with them once more. It was a workshop with typewriters hanging up and rubber mats on the floor. The smell of WD-40 hung thick in the air. My grandma passed away 24 years ago, but her spirit lives on in my heart, in a thousand memories, and on an old cassette. 
Thank you to all of those who've supported my work thus far. If you'd like to support me, donations can be made via patreon.com slash Johnny Gould. And of course, please share and comment. You'll also find previous episodes there. Patreon.com slash Johnny Gould.